0: Before we begin, we acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia and the continuing connection to lands, waters, and communities. We pay our respects to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures and elders past, present, and emerging. Welcome to Taking Care, a podcast of opera and the national boards. I'm Susan Bigger, and today we're talking about how COVID-19 is changing the experience of healthcare from both sides of the bed. How are those normal non-COVID healthcare experiences, becoming different for patients and for their families. And for health practitioners who are caring for them, we begin today with a personal story from Kath, a woman who speaks from her recent and relevant experience.
1: So earlier this year before COVID-19 hit, I was was diagnosed with um, brain cancer. I went in and started treatment fairly quickly because I was so sick. I'd had all these symptoms prior Um, such as falling over slurred speech fevers but i just made an excuse for everything because things like that don't happen to me they happen to other people so Mm. i thought yeah but when it got to the point where i just couldn't function i went and, and um had all the tests done so i had four rounds of chemo so each round of chemo went for five days so every 21 days i had i started a new set of treatment. Um, the first couple were okay because family and friends visiting hours were just normal so people could come and go anytime from you know 10am I think it was right through to about 7. However then they started the restrictions so initially the restrictions were two people twice a day for two hours so I think it was between 12 and 2 and 5 and 7 so even that you could sort of deal with and then when it really sort of when COVID really, really hit, they went down to one visitor per day for two hours, and that was really hard because it's. I was really, I was really sick. There was not, there's not a lot to do. You can only watch so much television. They had really good um, Wi-Fi, so I was able to Zoom, and that that that's okay. But it's still not personal. It's been really hard on people, and even even you know my my, my friends have had to Zoom in, and it just it's it's I just it's not the same. It's, it's just impersonal and as, as nice as it is to see people and have a conversation, it's not the same as sitting down having a cup of coffee with someone. It's, yeah, it's, I've, I found it really difficult to cope with. It's just one of these awful times in life. It's, uh, the loneliness was the worst part. I could deal with the, with the treatment, um, but the loneliness really does your head in.
0: Well, it's clearly been a lonely journey for Kath. And I know there are many other patients and families who are experiencing similar loneliness and other challenges as well in their healthcare experiences during this pandemic. Changes to visiting hours and uh, access for friends and family is one obvious change, but there are others that are impacting on healthcare. So here to shed more light on some of these issues are my three guests. Dr. Carmel Kroc, Director of the Emergency Department at the Royal Victorian Eye and Ear Hospital in Melbourne. Ashley Schooler, a nurse who works in case management and discharge coordination in a busy Melbourne neonatal intensive care unit, and Professor Harvey Noonan, Director of General Medicine and Program Director, Emergency and Acute Medicine at the Alfred Hospital. Carmel, maybe can you tell us a bit about how routines and experiences are changing in your context at the IONIR?
2: The IONIR is a very busy uh, little emergency department. How it's been changing for us is in the last few weeks, we've been giving all patients and carers masks so that they're sitting in the waiting room or wearing masks. Um, We're trying to limit the duration of our consultations. Our specialties that work there are ophthalmology and ear, nose and throat. So they're two of the high risk specialties. Um, Our doctors are obviously wearing PPE, which we've never done before, so that our doctors are wearing a mask and a face shield for every patient. For ear, nose, and throat, obviously, when you when you're um, testing for for COVID, you have a, a a nose swab done and then a throat swab. So there's, you know, high virus load in those areas of the body. So, uh, so when the pandemic kind of broke in Australia, the first thing when I went in on a Monday morning on the weekend, my young doctors had already set up uh, breath shields on the slit lamps so that there was an, an extra barrier between the doctor and the patient, so that your breath wasn't uh, passed on. So, we've you know the, the doctors are sort of very innovative in uh, changing and moving with what needs to be done um, in the pandemic.
0: Yeah, I bet. I bet they're needing to. And um, Ash, you work in neonatal care. I wonder if you can tell us what are some of the new, maybe sort of unexpected issues that emerged in that context?
3: In the neonatal context, I I guess a lot of it does pertain to visitations and, and who we're letting in and visitors and things like that. So we're only allowing parents in at the moment and the unit ordinarily operates on um, very sort of family-centred care we'd normally have siblings and grandparents and involve all of those people in the care so that's definitely changed things for um, um, yeah we sort of can't take the approach that we ordinarily would so there's you know um, there's been babies that um, are months old and have never met their siblings or extended family. so I think just in general the strain on staff and parents it's already sort of stressful a being a parent in the NICU and b um, caring for as nurses caring for these families so it definitely adds that um, strain and stress.
0: And Harvey what about you in, um, in general medicine what, what are you seeing uh, or in the areas where you work at the Alfred Hospital?
4: So the clinical work I've been doing in uh, is mainly general medicine which is acute patients coming through the ED who are unwell Uh, And uh, a lot of them have symptoms that are potentially ascribe ascribable to COVID. So they get labeled as a COVID suspect, which of course means then they have to um, be isolated. And that causes a huge change in the way we deliver care. Uh, General medicine particularly is a team sport. We have doctors, nurses, allied health, pharmacists, and uh, we thrive on teamwork. And that gets quite disrupted in that isolation environment. It, it becomes really challenging because typically, you can only have one staff member see the patient because you're trying to minimize the contact and the use of the limited PPE that we've got. So that staff member is in seeing the patient on behalf of the whole group, which can mean that some of the other staff members are looking after patients that they haven't actually spent time with or developed a relationship with. That's completely foreign to what we usually do, um, and the uh, you know negotiating people who have a, a little bit of a hearing impairment um, or don't speak English very well. You're wearing PPE. They can't see your lips. They can't hear you properly. And by the way, if you need an interpreter, well, then it's a telephone interpreter or a video interpreter, and that's all compounded um, by all the PPE that we're wearing. So we don't have that easy way of striking up a relationship with the patient, getting their trust. It's even, you know, you can't sort of hold a hand. Um, uh, it's all that kind of stuff. You know, it's it's really tough to, um, Uh, uh, strike up that easygoing conversation relationship in which people generally open themselves up to the healthcare team uh, so easily, usually, and it's just all a bit foreign and everybody's a bit worried.
2: Say so similarly, we go to call a patient out in the waiting room and we're wearing a mask and a face shield and often the wrong patient will come in with you because they, you're completely muffled. Harvey, you were talking about the challenges wearing PPE and delivering
3: sort of information and building rapport with um, patients. Um, I've definitely sort of found that um, this week. Alone, we've had a number of families that we've um, that I've been sort of in on, on in meetings with, discussing um, either quite extensive medical care or um, uh, and delivering bad news, which is uh, yeah particularly tricky when you've got half your face covered. And again, with the interpreters, um, that's been a challenge as well for.
0: In your interactions with patients' families, are they um, ch- changing their expectations about healthcare in this
2: pandemic? I mean, should they be? What What do you find, Carmel? Do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, look, we've found that patients are incredibly responsive and respectful to us in this period. They've been—they really uh, were happy to wear masks in our waiting room. They can see that we're doing the most that we can. We've done unusual things like, you know, offered to patients at triage, if they want to wait in their car, we'll call them on the phone and take most of the history across from the phone. Um, And again, patients have been really flexible in all of this. They've also been um, really flexible, like we're we're getting much better at introducing ourselves behind the masks, because we really go out looking like some sort of an astronaut when you go to see them. Um, so, you know, we introduce a little bit of humour in the situation because uh, the doctors are really stressed. We can see that patients are really stressed. Um, but it, it's, it's, you know, in an interesting way, it's almost broken down barriers, some of the barriers between healthcare workers and patients um, because we are all so much in this together.
0: What about, I wonder about people accessing care when they need it. Do you find that um, there have been some reports in the media that people aren't um, maybe going to hospital when they need it, and um, at least, you know, for you Carmel and Harvey, you're you're treating people who have other ongoing chronic conditions or comorbidities. Do you want to have any, do you have any comment about that?
4: Susan, a lot of our patients are elderly and um, have chronic disease and receive a lot of support at home, you know, council workers coming in, other other people visiting to support them and a lot of that just couldn't be done once uh, COVID was out there and the lockdowns were in place. So the various supports that had been keep, keeping people going, keeping them independent in their own homes fell away and they struggled as best they could and then quite often delayed doing anything or didn't have the means to actually make something happen to get them out of that situation so they presented when they were sicker as a result Um, they deteriorated at home without the supports and then you know came in quite quite sick I think that was a very common occurrence for um, the vulnerable vulnerable um, people out there
0: I can imagine that the implications are enormous. And you, Ash, would you like to comment on the way it's changed your experience or your colleagues' experience of
3: providing care? There's definitely been a, a bubbling sense of anxiety, particularly at the beginning, um, which definitely, I think, impacted um, just the sort of morale in the unit where I work. So uh, having to sort of adapt to that and then and also support each other and the patients through it has definitely been challenging.
4: I would agree I think the uh, you know the the staff have really risen to the task there's a job to be done and they get there and do it despite whatever the constraints are so that's been uh, I think amazing to uh, witness and makes me proud to work with them all. Uh, I think the other um, issue is the Uh, imperative to look after themselves and the others around them you know just as much as you're trying to look after yourself you're trying to make sure that uh, uh, you're not going to spread the virus to either your working colleagues or your uh, patients or for that matter your family your friends your loved ones anyone you know who's immunosuppressed that you might have any contact with
2: I asked one of the um, doctors the other day who's got a toddler at home and had just finished nights, so she's done four nights. And I said, how do you manage at home? Um, because, you know, how do you, how do you sleep during the day? And she said, well, initially she was just sleeping in a in a room at home, but the toddler would come and bang on the door constantly. And so she now goes to her parents, um, parents-in-law, who have a room all set up for her with a hot with a, an electric blanket on. Um, and she goes in and she curls up there. The majority of our um,
3: workforce in the NECU are um a lot of them are women with young families um and so you've got nurses and doctors alike working 12 14 hour shifts and then also going home to care for children who might otherwise be in school um and um a lot of a lot of there's sort of been a really common um narrative about uh about homeschooling as well so then on on their days off there's just sort of no reprieve from um working really um, so that stress plus um, any other sort of stresses. So partners losing jobs. Um, yeah, so it, it's a very unique sort of time. And um, yeah, it just highlights the importance of looking after each other.
0: Well, that's interesting. It makes me think about um, this whole concept of taking care of oneself. I, 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 we've mentioned many... Probably negative impacts of COVID for health practitioners. I wonder if there are any positive ones that you can see emerging from this in terms of the ways of working or the or, or looking after one another.
3: Yeah, it sort of creates a a, a level of comfort to express um, your health needs. Um, to your colleagues and, and bosses and sort of help hope to sort of change that culture of having to sort of toughen up and come to work. Um, I don't think that, I mean, I think that we're pretty good at, at that as nurses anyway, because you're not sort of coming into, you don't want to spread anything at the best of times. Um, but yeah, sort of um, changing the culture around that, plus, um, plus mental health as well. So I think that a lot of people have been able to voice their... Um, you know anxieties and things like that to each other and and to their bosses and I think that's a good sort of thing for a cultural shift in this yeah
2: I was going to also say we're not really used to noticing when we have a slight cold, a tickle in your throat or a a blocked nose and, and it wouldn't cross our minds not to go to work with those sort of symptoms on a normal day. So I've had four or five of my doctors come up and say, Oh, gee, Carmel, I've got a sore throat today or my nose is blocked. What do I do? And of course I have to say, you have to go and get tested. Um, And even myself, you know, I had really minor symptoms and, I said it to a friend, an ophthalmologist, you know, I've, I've got a blocked nose today. Um, and she said, well, that means you've got to go and get tested. So we've almost had to learn to verbalise to each other when we've got mild symptoms um, and have the responsibility to know that that, that puts us, um, makes us a, a danger to our, to our colleagues and to our patients. So that's been an enormous change for us.
4: Yeah I I think for those who do have uh, loved ones at home I think it's hard if you live alone particularly in this environment but but for those who do have um, family and supports at home uh, I think it has uh, allowed greater focus on the family you know the time off tends to be um, without as much pressure for the social distractions or the school sport or the you know uh, parties and all that sort of stuff so um, I think some of my colleagues have focused a lot more on those um, sort of core central family issues and actually um, have uh, feel they have benefited as a result.
2: I was going to say one of the other sort of strange benefits is that we've been able to have some uh, robust disagreements on occasions and you've had to get off things very quickly. So in the early days, there was some disagreement about which PPE to wear in what circumstances and that changed quite rapidly, we've all had to kind of get used to guidelines changing. Normally guidelines will stay in place for, you know, you would hope days or weeks or months rather than changing so regularly. Um, but, but the sort of principles that we have around patient safety, like having a, you know, a robust safety culture where you can speak up, where you don't blame each other, um, where you're self-aware, these kind of things we've had to actually really live them Day by day, um, moment by moment that's that's my view.
4: We still have a um, a manual journey board which is a you know whiteboard, um, and we sort of plan the um, the care around that next to the patient's names um, and uh, the challenge has always been to get somebody from every team at that journey board meeting you know, how do you get the physio the o t the speech therapist uh, it's It's very hard to do in a physical sense, but now that we have the um, digital uh, support with the communication, everybody can be involved. And they can be even more involved because they can be listening to this at the same time as they have the screen open on the electronic medical record. And they can be going into the patient's record and actually contributing to the conversation directly from what they can see in the record, which of course you can't do if you're sitting at a physical journey board. So you can actually enrich the team input uh, in this particular situation because of the communication.
0: And very reassuring for patients to, to hear about, it. as people have often, uh, patients who have spent a lot of time in hospitals do often, are often frustrated by communication also. And so it sounds like much of that is is leading to improved care. Even bringing our minds back to Kath um, and w- what her comments were. I wonder if, uh, Harvey, you or Carmel want to comment on uh, what it's like for patients when they can't have their loved ones with them. Harvey.
4: Yeah, I think that's you know that's huge, isn't it? We I think we've all heard the story about chap who couldn't visit for five weeks and then visited on the day his mum I think it was died or well, grandmother can't remember, but that's just so common. Lots of things are being done. You know, we have tablets on sticks that you walk into the room and you try and uh, you know make it easy for people to communicate. But it's still hugely challenging to get that. Uh, Working in anything like the the uh, real experience, and I I think the other challenge is the changing continuity of care. You know, when you come in as a suspected virus patient, um, you're usually managed in the suspected area or ward by the suspected team, (laughs) and then as soon as you're cleared, which might be you know at the office at the moment, it's often as little as um, five or six hours. Uh, you then go to another team pretty smartly. So, you know, you, you get, you've got the ED team and then you've got the COVID team and then you've got the, you know, you go to your regular Warn team and then you're ready to go home and you get the outpatient team. It's like, it's, we have to really think about how we integrate that care and reduce the opportunities for discontinuity of care as much as we can. And that's a real challenge in our system. And it's particularly a challenge around hospital discharge at the moment. know the better we can integrate what happens in the hospital with the community the the, um, better we'll be.
2: Our patients a lot of them are elderly and obviously either vision impaired and or hearing impaired Um, and you know normally they'll come with their son or their daughter who might be translating for them or who will be their eyes and their ears Um, and I think it's been really really difficult um, especially for the elderly in in our hospital
0: It is really difficult because we've always said that um, patient-centered care, person-centered care involves having the family present, having the people that you love present. And it sounds like patients and families are being quite understanding, but that doesn't take away from the fact that it's still very painful for them. And presumably painful for you as health practitioners watching that experience.
4: Hmm.
0: I wonder as a final question, if I could just ask any of you to respond to, what would be your, your message then to patients and families in this time? Would you have a, advice for them or a word for them?
3: We need to make patients and families feel safe to keep asking asking the questions and then that's okay and we don't mind asking questions and that will be as transparent as possible with them. Um, and we've got their safety in mind. That um, we, as nurses, feel safe delivering care at the moment, so that they, so they should too feel safe coming into the hospital and attending appointments, um, and also just to take the advice of the state and premier seriously, and we can get through this.
2: It's it's safe to come to hospital. Um, we've, as we said before, we've seen a lot of people delay emergencies and and present late. So if you need to come to hospital, you know, we'll keep you safe there.
4: We we can't provide the best care without the input of the loved ones around the patient, and we want you to speak up. We know it's more difficult for you to do so, but please don't let that stop you.
0: So I want to thank our guests today, Carmel Crock Ash Schooler, and Harvey Noonan, um, for their expertise and thoughtfulness and empathy. We're traveling down new roads with this pandemic and um, these are exactly the characteristics that we need to get through that um, as we all adapt to these new healthcare um, experiences and norms for patients, families, and health practitioners. Thank you, thank you.
4: Thanks for having us.
0: If you have any feedback or questions, please email communications at opera.gov.au. To hear more episodes of our podcast, please subscribe to Taking Care wherever you get your podcasts or just search for Taking Care on the opera website.